Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. The science is in. Processed food is addictive, can make you extremely unhappy, and will prematurely kill you. How did the corporations deceive you about this? Hi. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Robert Lustig, who has written a new book, The Hacking of the American Mind. And he will help help us understand how this process occurred. He is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of uh, California at San Francisco and is also a member of the Institute for Health Policy studies and i believe since the and he's been on 60 minutes which is you know quite uh, an achievement uh and his last book fat chance was also a new york times bestseller and i believe since the last time we've interviewed him he's also finished going to law school and has his perspective his legal view in this book so welcome and thank you for joining us dr lustig thank you for having me dr mercola always a pleasure so I'm wondering if you can tell me what the motivation for writing this book was uh, after the fa- your book, Fat Chance, and what you hope to achieve by writing it. Well, the motivation actually started a very long time ago, about 30 years ago. Uh, while I was a postdoctoral fellow in neuroscience at Rockefeller University, um, I learned about the interaction between two neurochemicals in the brain, dopamine and serotonin. At the time, we only had some basic science data. We only had correlational data. But it looked like there was this very specific interaction. And I kept my eyes and ears open about this issue for a long time. As I was researching the data for Fat Chance four years ago, it became very clear that the data had come in on the role of diet and behavioral health. And in addition, We also now had neuroimaging studies. And so I did a brief look and realized everything was falling into place, that this issue, dopamine and serotonin, was actually at the core of what had now become our depression crisis and our opiate crisis. At the same time, I was giving psychiatry grand rounds at the University of Florida in 2014. And the woman who ran their outpatient services took me on a tour of their facility. She herself was a recovered addict. And she said something to me that was so jarring. She said, when I was shooting up, that made me happy. What my new life has brought me is pleasure. And I thought to myself, that's exactly wrong. That's exactly turned around. I didn't say anything to her. I went home and talked with some psychiatry friends. And they said, oh, yeah, a lot of people seem to get addicted with this concept in mind. I said, well, there's a book there. And so um, that was the nidus. That was the genesis uh, of this book. 
Terrific. <clears throat> and you delve deeply into some of the neurochemistry in the brain and, and what gets us addicted. And maybe we can t take a step there before we go into the politics of this, which, you know, you really also um, go into great depth. So <clears throat> in the book, you mentioned that tryptophan, and I didn't really uh, realize this, is the one of the rarest amino acids in our diet. And of course, and, and that is the precursor for for serotonin, but there's a lot of confusion about serotonin, and you certainly weren't confused in what you wrote about it. It's and that people think if you make serotonin, take a lot of tryptophan, you're going to have it in your brain, but it doesn't. Most of the serotonin is in your gut. So why don't you expand on that process? Well, so serotonin is made from tryptophan. Tryptophan is the only amino acid that can be converted into serotonin, and tryptophan is the rarest amino acid in our diet. Eggs have the most certain poultry, other um, uh, uh, avian uh, species have some. There's very little in vegetables, to be honest with you. Um, and uh, obviously, carbohydrate <laughs> has virtually no uh, tryptophan whatsoever. So it's actually pretty hard to get tryptophan into your body to start with. Then take processed food on top of that then it's even harder because there, it tends to be tryptophan depleted. And then take the fact that 99.9% of the tryptophan that you ingest either gets turned into serotonin in the gut for your gut's purposes or goes into your platelets to help your platelets help you clot. And you realize that very little tryptophan actually gets to the brain. Then top that off with the fact that tryptophan has to share an amino acid transporter with two relatively common amino acids, phenylalanine and tyrosine, which, by the way, are the precursors for dopamine. So you can see that the more uh, processed food you eat, the more dopamine you will make because you will have the precursors for that. They will actually crowd out the ability to get uh, tryptophan across. It's like taxi cabs on New Year's Eve, you know, try to get one. That's what uh, getting tryptophan across the CNS into your brain to be used is like. Yet serotonin is the nidus of contentment, of happiness. It explains why diet is so problematic in terms of what we've done in, and uh, our uh, basically uh, 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 social devolution to our unhappiness and depression. Yes, and you state really clearly in the book that uh, that the food, I mean, there were, were, many people are seeking to get become happy from making their food choices. That that that's not the case at all. And you provide a very compelling uh, uh, comments for that. But it's the experiences that can make you happy. People can make you happy, and right. you can make yourself happy. So. And you outline a number of different ways to get there. So maybe you can elaborate on that. Sure, absolutely. Ultimately, the goal is up your serotonin. And there are four ways to be able to do that. And they're all cheap. In fact, they're all free. And they're all things your grandmother told you. The only thing is you didn't understand how important they were. You thought they were just sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, mantras or diatribes, you know, that families re repeated to each other. The fact is the science is in and we understand why these things work. The four C's, if you will. The first, connect. Now, 
we have a lot of connection. <laughs> the problem is it's not interpersonal connection. And it turns out that Facebook does not count as connection. Um, when we're talking about interpersonal connection, we're talking about eye to eye. Turns out the facial uh, uh, grimaces or uh, facial emotions that the person you're talking to provide to you actually activate a set of neurons in your brain called mirror neurons, which are the drivers of empathy and specifically linked to serotonin. So in order to be able to generate a feeling of empathy, which ultimately turns into contentment slash happiness, you actually have to connect and you can't do it over the internet. You cannot connect with anonymous. It just doesn't work. So the fact is Facebook and uh, Instagram and Pinterest and you know Snapchat okay. are all generators of dopamine. They're all generators of, shall we say, pleasure. But the problem is as dopamine goes up, serotonin goes down. So these various uh, new um, modes of communication have actually made us unhappy. Now, let me stop there before you go to the other three. And uh, I saw 60 Minutes a few months ago in which they interviewed a Google executive who had uh, actually quit. He was- Harris. Oh, you remember that interview oh, very well. Yeah, so maybe you can elaborate on that because it was just really eye-opening and how the, all this sophisticated brain-powered intelligence is really directed at addicting people to that interface. In fact, the food companies, the internet companies, the video game companies um, have all capitalized on this biology of dopamine versus serotonin to basically give us a hit and make us want it and actually turn it into more than just a habit. So there are four things that go into turning something into a habit that ultimately becomes money generating. The first, you might call the itch, okay? The second, you might call the scratch. And the scratch is, of course, looking at your email or looking at your cell phone or, you know, looking at your Facebook account. The third is called variable reward. If you get the same reward every time you look at it, it doesn't turn into reward. If anything, it actually goes away. So it has to be inconsistent. It has to be relatively random, like a slot machine. And then the fourth, of course, is investment, where, in fact, you will pay to satisfy that itch. And the vicious cycle goes around again and again and again. It's very well outlined in a book by Nir Ayal, who is one of the internet gurus, uh, and the title of that book was called Hooked. Uh, we go through the science and the dopamine uh, generation uh, within my book, The Hacking of the American Mind. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. When I, when I travel uh, and you look around as soon as the, the plane lands that virtually everyone is on their cell phone and you're walking through the airport or in a public space. I mean, it's the, it's the majority of people who are looking down at their cell phone. I mean, we are living in an addictive culture. And this, this is just commenting on the behavioral component. It has nothing to do with the microwave radiation exposure, which has its other pernicious effects. Indeed, you know, we have basically created, you know, this, shall we say, alternative universe for ourselves. And there are certainly reasons why we have done it. Uh, and, I'm, you know, it's, it goes back a long way. In fact, uh, Aldous Huxley, in his book, Brave New World, in 1932, 
said, you know, 500 years from now, we will basically all be just pleasure-seeking devices. Um, he got it wrong because he was 400 years too late. We're here. Yes, indeed. And this has likely been a very significant contributing factor for the reason why addiction and depression, and as you mentioned earlier, the opiate crisis, which is now killing more people every year than automobile accidents, and it's growing rapidly, uh, virtually hitting every community in the United States, uh, has been, would you, would you uh, believe that this is a big contributing factor for this? Oh, absolutely. Um, ultimately, there's this thing called addiction transfer, mm -hmm. and the reason for this is because the dopamine pathway in the brain, the reward generation pathway, it's the same no matter what your source of pleasure is. So it can be a substance such as nicotine, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, uh, f bad food, <laughs> you know, sugar-containing food, or it can be behaviors such as internet, uh, shopping. Um, porn, you, you name it. Um, the bottom line is that the dopamine pathway is exactly the same. Here's the problem in a nutshell. Dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Now, many neurotransmitters are. Because it's an excitatory neurotransmitter, when it is released and the neuron on the, on the other side accepts that signal, it can cause damage. And so over time, excitatory neurotransmitters can cause cell death. This was the whole issue behind glutamate and MSG being a problem in the brain for all those years we talked about, you know, whether or not, you know, adding MSG to Chinese food was a problem. Is this glutamate neurotoxicity? Well, dopamine is neurotoxic. So the neuron, the postsynaptic neuron has a method for dealing with it. And the way it does it, it's a self-protection mechanism. It down-regulates the receptors. So there are fewer of them. So it can't do as much damage. So you get a hit, you get a rush, the receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush and the receptors go down and down and down and down until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. And we call that tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's addiction. Turns out serotonin when it acts on the 1A receptor, which is the contentment receptor, turns out it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, not an excitatory neurotransmitter. So there's no such thing as overdosing on too much happiness. Serotonin does not do damage to the 1A receptor. So in fact, you can't, shall we say, overdose on happiness. The problem is there is one thing that downregulates serotonin, it's dopamine. And then throw a little soupçon of cortisol or stress on top of the mix because cortisol downregulates that serotonin 1A receptor so that you can't bind to it. And now you've got a real recipe for both addiction and depression. And that's what we're seeing throughout all of civilized society, not just in America, but around the world. So the uh, neurochemistry that you just described for the dopamine receptors seems to be very analogous to the scenario that occurs when we overeat carbohydrates and we develop insulin resistance. It doesn't, it's similar, but not the same, where you get the essentially dopamine resistance or, or tolerance, which is triggered by all these addictive behaviors that you just discussed. So Absolutely. maybe 
you can integrate how sugar fits into this equation, which is the cheapest <laughs> pleasure that we can get to stimulate that dopamine. That's right. You know, sugar used to be very expensive. In fact, at one point, sugar was more expensive than gold. Uh, sugar was fetishized during the Middle Ages. There are um, sculptures made of sugar um, in uh, Tehran to this day that still exist, and we have pictures of them. Uh, you know, it was only for kings at, at one point. Um, the fact is that the Industrial Revolution, the pot still, the ability to crystallize uh, uh, sucrose, um, ultimately made sugar relatively cheap. And then, of course, high fructose corn syrup made it dirt cheap. And so what happened was sugar started appearing in all of our food. And now, you know, virtually every processed food in the entire supermarket is uh, now laced with added sugar on purpose because the food industry knows when they add, when they add it, you buy more because of this uh, hedonic property of it because it is, in fact, addictive. So it has become the cheapest of thrills. Everyone can afford it. And so what has happened is people will stop smoking and start drinking or they will start drinking, uh, stop drinking and start eating. And ultimately, we're seeing the uh, phenomenon of addiction transfer in uh, numerous uh, 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 populations, uh, people switching from one to another. And if you try to do something about that, like say bariatric surgery, so you're trying to do something about your weight gain, your insulin resistance, your type two diabetes, then, you'll be, then you end up gravitating toward alcohol. This is what happened to Carney Wilson. And there's actually plenty of data that shows that Bariatric surgery uh, recipients increase their frequency of alcoholism afterward. Bottom line, it doesn't matter what the stimulus is. If you're hooked, you're hooked. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, you mentioned that sugar, and <clears throat> this is a bit confusing for some people, I believe, is, is not a food. It's actually an additive, just like alcohol. Right. And that's why the FDA requires it to be labeled on the nutritional facts label. Well, in fact, they don't yet uh, require it, and it looks like oh, the proposed change. That's right. Well, that's right. There's a proposed change uh, base uh, that occurred in January of 2016. However, the Grocery Manufacturers Association has lobbied the current Trump administration to delay the advent of that new nutrition facts label by three years. So <laughs> there's a good chance we will never see that added sugar on the label. Did your uh organization have anything to do with uh, introducing that legislation? Uh, we provided the science that helped spur that legislation forward. Yes, we did. Yeah, so it must be uh, sad for you to see that go by the wayside. We're not quite done. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on. I will tell you that you know, the Trump administration has made it very clear that they are interested in deregulation, and that includes deregulating food. My job for the next four years, my self-appointed job, if you will, is to get the medical, the dietary, and the dental professions to line up around this issue so that when the administration does change, we will be able to speak with one voice. Well, yeah, I hope I wish you well in those efforts. Thank you. So <clears throat> perhaps we can go into some of the strategies and the uh, processes that these multinational corporations who have literally many billions of dollars 
uh, and incredible resources at their disposal uh, on how they use those, those resources to manipulate and deceive us. And I, I think we could start off with one of the most, well, actually, I was thinking of drugs, but we're, we're only one of three countries in the world that actually allows drugs to be advertised on television. And that's, that's part of the uh, government's uh, um, uh, plan. If you look at uh, the Supreme Court decisions that took place between the mid-70s and mid-80s, they basically took away individual rights and you know loaded up corporate rights in a very very distinct fashion and i describe four specific supreme court decisions in the book uh, uh, the first one uh having to do with uh, ability for corporate funding uh, to be unlimited. The second one having to do with the ability of any corporation to uh, advertise anything they want. Uh, the third one having to do with individual corporate uh, funding of campaigns. And then finally, the last one, corporate speech. And the fact of the matter is they've taken any uh, regulation out of corporate speech. Corporations can say anything they want at any time they want, whether it's true or not. And we are now seeing the advent of the post-truth society because of how the Supreme Court chipped away at our own individual rights. By doing so, these corporations have affected our ability to experience pleasure and happiness. They've actually inserted the propaganda into our limbic system, our reward generating system, so that we constantly seek reward at the expense of our own happiness. This is why we currently live in the world we live in. Yes, but in the process you described that occurred with the Supreme Court decisions is actually an extension of a process that occurred almost 100 years prior to that, the Civil War, when they developed the corporations as this master plan strategy to really uh, take control of this of the scenario and, and really extend the influence of the government and have the corporations control the government, which control the, the, the culture. Well, in fact, uh, the uh, late uh, political philosopher from Princeton, Sheldon Wolin, wrote a very, very poignant book called Democracy, Inc., um, the rise of inverted totalitarianism, where basically he envisioned that corporations and government, Washington, if you will, are one and the same. And if you look at what's going on in the White House today, uh, you can see that Wolin's um, nightmare scenario has been realized. Would you describe that as fascism? The well, uh, it, it, it's fascism in the sense that um, we... Uh, don't seem to have a voice of our own. It's not fascism in the sense that um, it's the government that's told us what to do. It's that we've uh, basically abdicated our own responsibility for our own uh, health and safety. So let's discuss some of the consequences of this rise of corporate power and influence and its ability to manipulate and deceive us. Uh, uh, I guess probably in the, really the crux of your books is and the focus is on sugar and really what of your professional passions and you know you're really well known for exposing the dangers of fructose. Well, we have the data you know yeah. it's where we have the data. Mm -hmm. So the um, 
and fructose, of course, is a monosaccharide and half of conventional sugar. So, you know, they're really one of the same for the most part. You're going to, if you're having sugar, you're getting fructose for the most part. So, completely. Yeah. So, uh, perhaps you can discuss the influence uh, that sugar has on the effects of healthcare and how it's damaging us and how it's contribution to the $3 trillion healthcare budget that we now have in the United States. Right. So, we now have the smoking gun. We now have the data that links sugar consumption to what we call de novo lipogenesis, that is new fat making in the liver, which we have, uh, which drives liver fat accumulation, which then drives insulin resistance, which then drives hyperinsulinemia, the pancreas having to release too much insulin, which drives virtually all of the chronic metabolic diseases associated with metabolic syndrome. That is type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and dementia. We now have the smoking gun. We have the mechanism by which this occurs. And in fact, our paper just appeared in the journal Gastroenterology, which demonstrates that if you take sugar out of the diet of children with metabolic syndrome and substitute starch, so calorie for calorie exchange, glucose for fructose exchange, no change in calories, no change in weight, 10 days, you can reverse metabolic syndrome, you can reverse the insulin resistance, you can reverse the liver fat, you can reverse the burden on the pancreas, basically all of the metabolic perturbations go away. This is the smoking gun. Can you be more specific with the starch? Is that just a, a glucose polymer or was that some type of, it had fiber in there? Or what, no, what was no, we did not add fiber. We basically just uh, substituted refined starch for refined sugar. So, but what was this starch? refined starch source? Well, I'm not saying refined starch is good. Yeah, but what was the source? Oh, so yeah. like bagels. Okay. You know, like um, uh, baked potato chips. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, basically, you know, if you substitute starch for sugar, you're not going to, you know, shall we say, get a whole lot better, but you get a whole lot better compared to sugar. Um, so we know that sugar is a primary, if not the primary, I'm not saying it's the only, mm -hmm. but it is a primary driver of chronic metabolic disease, and we have the data. In addition, we have a paper coming out very shortly in a very famous journal that you've heard of, which models what's going to happen in terms of healthcare expenditures, if we reduced our sugar consumption by 20%, which is what taxes would do, or if we reduced sugar consumption by 50%, which is what the USDA suggested we do. And I can just tell you that for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease alone, never mind all of the other diseases, just fatty liver disease, the United States over the next 20 years could save $103 billion just on that disease alone. Ultimately, this is where the money goes. This is why healthcare will be uh, uh, defunct. Uh, this is why Medicare will be broke by the year 2026. And the problem is that it doesn't matter if it's Obamacare or Trump care, because they're dealing with healthcare. We have to deal with health. And health is going down the tubes. And there's no amount of healthcare that can fix 
what's wrong with our diet unless we fix the diet first. And there's nothing in Obamacare or Trumpcare to fix the diet. So, well, this, it's, all, it's all tied into the corporate influence too, because absolutely. it's this vicious cycle. No question. And I know that for a fact, because in 2011, I met with uh, Michelle Obama's point person for Let's Move, a guy by the name of Sam Cass, who's her personal chef and her point person to Let's Move. And we were on a panel together, and he told me straight out that everyone in the White House, including President Obama, read the New York Times article, Is Sugar Toxic?, which was about our research at UCSF, written by Gary Taubes. And everyone, including the president, was in complete agreement. And they would do absolutely nothing about it. Not a wink, not a nod, because they didn't want the fight. They had enough enemies. They didn't want the food industry as an enemy as well. And I said to him, I said, well, will you try to block anything that we do? He said, no, we're going to cheer you on, but we're not going to acknowledge it. I said, very well then. And here we are. The sad reality. <laughs> but the beautiful thing of it, I mean, there's certainly downsides to technology, as you enumerated, the addiction component, the dopamine trigger, and then, of course, the electromagnetic frequencies. But it is a very powerful resource so that we can have discussions and dialogues like this, and you can write books, and we can educate the public so they don't have to be deceived. This is still a free country. You have freedom of choice. Indeed. That's true. Listen, when television came out, it was going to be the great information resource it ended up becoming the great entertainment resource and unfortunately what it's really become is the great dumbing down of society resource you know provider of fake news and the <laughs> because the fake news is perpetuated by the uh, six corporations five or six that that really own 85 percent of the corporate of the national media well there you go so the bottom line is we are in trouble but you can't fix a problem until you recognize what the problem is. This book, The Hacking of the American Mind, demonstrates how the science, how the biology, ultimately has influenced not just our health, but in fact our policy. And I go way back in this book. I go back to the Declaration of Independence. The most famous clause in the entire Declaration, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, guess what? Life is going in the wrong direction because lifespan has actually decreased over the last couple of years. Liberty, turns out, if you were born in Chicago, you have a much better chance of being able to be self-supporting than if you were born in Baltimore, unrelated to your education, unrelated to any other thing about you. We've built prisons of our own construction, whether it be a ghetto or whether it be a walled community. And finally, Happiness. Well, the argument demonstrates that our happiness has done nothing but go south. And in part because of this serotonin issue. And as our happiness has gone south, what we've done is we've gotten sicker and sicker. And now we have the addiction crisis, the opioid crisis, and we also have the depression crisis. What's really interesting to me is that SSRI use, which is the second most commonly prescribed medication after statins, has actually started to go down in, and what's taken its place is legal marijuana. Bottom line, they're both treating anxiety. 
Okay, they're doing it in slightly different ways, but recreational marijuana doesn't need a doctor. SSRIs do. So people are taking their anxiety into their own hands. The point is, there's no reason that we need to be so anxious, except that we've put ourselves there. So, and of course, cannabis uh, doesn't have as many side effects as the drug, but it's still really not treating the, the primary issue, which is, you know, the producing the serotonin naturally through lifestyle choices, primarily food. Indeed. So we, we have it within our capacity to actually alter this for ourselves and for our families. But again, you can't fix the problem until you know what the problem is. Yes. And one of your recommendations, one of your primary recommendations is, which I actually disagree with, but only partially, is to cook real food for yourself, for your friends, and for your family. And the minor disagreement is this, this I say most of the time you don't have to cook it. I would substitute prepare because, you know, <laughs> cooking implies you, you have to heat it. And a lot of the best food you don't have to heat. I mean, why would you cook a fruit? I, I won't argue that. In fact, I'm, I'm with you, Dr. Mercola. The point is that when you cook or prepare, you know what you're doing. You know what's right. going into it. When you go to a restaurant, you've oh. given up control. You don't know what's in the food. You don't know what they've done to the food. You don't know, of course, where the food has been sourced. In fact, our nonprofit known as Eat Real, and that is an acronym, R-E-A-L, Responsible Epicurean and Agricultural Leadership. We started as a nonprofit to basically teach restaurants what it was that they should be doing and to provide a trust mark to the public, a green fork. If you see this green fork in a restaurant's window, it means that whatever's in this restaurant can't kill you. That's so good because Maybe you can comment on this. From my understanding, after reading uh, the book Real Food, Fake Food by Larry Olmsted, which I suspect you've read too, uh, which expands on the, this perversion of regulation in the restaurants, uh, it is there is essentially no regulatory action or enforcement of flat-out lying to the consumer. Indeed. There's no, there's, no, there's no consequences to it, except they're going to be enriched after confusing and deceiving their customers. The, the, their goal is to confuse the customer, and there's reasons why. Let me, ex let me give you an example. Turns out there are 51, count them, 51 separate government agencies that regulate the food in this country. And guess what? Most of those regulations actually run counter to each other. Big surprise. The question is, why is there, why are there 51? Why isn't there one? Why isn't the FDA in charge? Well, it turns out the FDA has no budget. In fact, the Trump administration wants to cut back more on the FDA's budget than they already have. There aren't enough lawyers, never mind enough scientists at the FDA. And this is by design. The problem is the uh, corporations, um, you know, they've basically gotten away with murder ever since um, the jungle from 1906, uh, Upton Sinclair's um, uh, expose, expose of the uh, meatpacking industry. And, um, you know, we have to take it back. Yes, indeed. So and I couldn't agree with you more on restaurants. You just have to be aware that the, the, what's on that menu is likely not to be true. Now, you can get away with salads, especially if you avoid the the dressing, which is going to be a processed oil, which you shouldn't have, or even the vinegar. Well, and then bring the sugar and the dressing. Yeah, yeah, of course. And bring your own protein source. Like I, I travel pretty much regularly, I suspect you do, and I travel with sardines, 
which if you're going to put in your care and you have to be careful because the TSA will definitely want to screen those. <laughs> but sardines are one of the healthiest foods you can get, very very high in DHA and low, and have the, which is a great fat and right. uh, you know low in toxins. So and you can put that as a protein source on your salad. So that's that's a good travel solution. But you're right. You got, I mean I hardly when I'm at home I hardly ever eat at a restaurant. It's almost a hundred percent at home. Right. I will tell you when I used to eat at restaurants and I did relatively frequently because you know i was a postdoc and a you know mm -hmm. scientist and i was you know up late and you know at work you know till all hours um you know i gained 45 pounds i have since lost those 45 pounds in part because i come home and my wife and i cook i would say probably 13 days out of 14. would you do that last day of the, of the two weeks twice a month you know, we, have kids. we have kids too okay so. all right there you go absolutely you've got to be pragmatic so are there any other um principles that you've uh, recommended to uh essentially circumvent this dopamine addiction right so there are there are four c's if you will connect we've talked about contribute okay now contribute does not mean to your ira Contribute does not mean to your wallet. Contribute means to something greater than yourself. Contribute means some sort of contribution to society. Turns out that is a wonderful serotonin booster. Um, you can get happiness and contentment from your job, but there are certain criteria that have to be met. And most people, unfortunately, have a boss that is not contributing to their happiness. So the you know the workplace is not the best place to achieve any meaningful contentment. Um, the prefrontal cortex of the brain basically is the Jiminy Cricket if, of the brain, if you will, and it tamps down on dopamine. But there are many things that basically release that. Um, all of the things that cause us not to cope—that's number three. Cope. So lack of sleep not enough exercise, multitasking. Multitasking is one of the single most prevalent and prominent causes of unhappiness in our society. We value people who multitask. Turns out it's only 2.5% of the population. The rest of us, it's smoke and mirrors, and it's actually contributing to our unhappiness. And of course, with our cell phones, we're all multitasking all the time because of the immediate distractions. So cope. And finally, again, number four, cook. And if you cook, you're gonna up your tryptophan, you're gonna down your fructose, and you're gonna up your omega-3 fatty acids. In addition, if you're cooking, you know what you're putting in, and the chances are you're going to be increasing your fiber content. And that's super important because what, they're, what you're doing then is you're feeding your bacteria instead of feeding you. And numerous investigators, including, say, Emmerin Meyer at UCLA, has shown that your GI flora tell your brain what they want through signals that go through the bloodstream and potentially even neural ones as well. So if you do not feed your bacteria, you do not get happy. So eating well, you prepare is super important. You know, you really... And I think what really 
one of the primary issues that brought you to prominence was your mastery of biochemistry as it relates to human physiology, which you don't really go into dive deeply in this book, which is a bit of a surprise, but you don't. That chance had but more. You still have the knowledge there. <laughs> and I'm wondering, it, it, it seems to me a big part of this happiness equation is to increase the serotonin through optimizing tryptophan. So I'm wondering if you could expand on that concept a bit, because there's this, this, this dilemma, as I referenced earlier, is that most of that serotonin produced in the gut is used there locally, and it's not into the brain. So how do you increase systemic trip, tryptophan to go through the blood-brain barrier? Well, so as I mentioned earlier, there are many diversions for tryptophan away from the brain. So it can be metabolized in the intestine itself. It can be metabolized in the platelets. It can be turned into kynurenine, which is a secondary metabolite in the liver. And it can be not transported across the blood-brain barrier because of phenylalanine and tyrosine taking up the uh, amino acid transporter. Um, in addition, of course, you have to have your serotonin neurons actually functional. And there are things that will kill off serotonin neurons, including um, party drugs. So for instance, MDMA or ecstasy okay, is a famous dopamine and serotonin killer. So you know, using um, uh, drugs of abuse, uh, those tend to be uh, psychomimetics, they tend to be uh, packaged in neurons, you know, uh, mimicking the natural uh, 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 neurotransmitters themselves, and they tend to cause cell death. So once you've lost those serotonin neurons, it's pretty hard to get any sort of happiness signal. So, you know, recognizing where, what's wrong, where the serotonin, where the tryptophan is, and then keeping the uh, alternative uh, pathways down by eating real food, by eating, shall we say, um, high tryptophan food, which includes eggs. A lot of people have excluded eggs, and I think that's a big mistake. Where is most of the tryptophan in eggs? Is it in the yolk or the white? It's in the white. Interesting. The yolk has cholesterol. The white, of course, is albumin. It's, uh, it's the protein. So it's one of the amino acids in the albumin. Yes. Yes. Okay, that would make sense. Oh. That's exactly what I don't eat because one of my stress, I give I give all the egg whites to my personal trainer <laughs> because oh. I'm I'm concerned. Maybe should have one occasionally, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm concerned about overstimulating mTOR. Well, uh, it, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, I think that there's a um, uh, a good give and take, and uh, I think eggs are a a big uh, plus all 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 taken into account. How many eggs do you eat a week? Uh, probably about eight, I would eight. say. Yeah. And are you convinced from the literature that if you have the whole egg and not just egg whites, that the and you and you're consuming them raw and cooked, that there's enough uh, biotin in the egg yolk to compensate for the avid in this, which which yeah, kind of I, think so. I, I, I have not seen that this is a problem. If, uh, you know, as long as you eat a shall we say rational diet. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people out there not eating rational diets, sure. and are heavy on one thing, therefore they're light on something else. Um, if you eat real food, the problem takes care of itself. So that is the highest source, food source of tryptophan. Is eggs, uh, by far. Egg, egg whites, specifically. Egg whites, by far. Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. 
important seems like be an important part of the the happiness prescription is to make sure you have enough of that. Uh, all you right, can and from other places, but that's sort of the highest concentration. Yeah, it's good to know. I might be having a few more egg whites as a result of our conversation. <laughs> My trainer is not going to be too happy. I must because I give him like two dozen egg whites every few weeks or so. So. The, the other item in the diet that's super important, and of course, you know this, and you've already mentioned it, is omega-3 fatty acids. Oh, so, gosh, that is just such, they are, so crucial. They are probably the single most beneficial thing you can put in your body. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, are anti-inflammatory. They are anti-Alzheimer's. Uh, they uh, increase membrane fluidity. Therefore, they increase neuronal distensibility, which means that it's less likely that any given neuron will die. Therefore there's less chance of uh, succumbing to uh, cell death and dementia. Uh, you know, the, the omega-3s are a boon to uh, human health. The problem, of course, is that when we took the fat out of the food, we took all the fat out of the food. And, uh, you know, it's been a real um, uh, uh, chore to get the medical uh, uh, cognoscente, you know, to turn around on this. I do want to uh, do a shout out to the American Heart Association because they have now debunked their own cholesterol fat hypothesis. They now recognize that saturated fat was not the demon they made it out to be and that there are seven classes of fats and that you actually have to consume omega-3s. You have to consume monounsaturates. And in fact, you do have to consume some saturated fat because it's a major component of membranes. No question. It's too bad it only took them five decades to turn their position around. No um, argument, but you know what? Yeah. Admitting you're wrong is half the battle. Yes. And I, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read Stephen Gundry's new book, The Plant Paradox. I no. would rec highly recommend it. The guy is brilliant. He's in your area of the world, and I'm sure you've heard of him. But his primary rule, as your, your, one of your rules, is it's not so much what you eat that makes you healthy, it's what you don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> and for, you know, especially the, the 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 pernicious fats that we're all the processed fats. That's probably one of the worst things. Sure. So it's a big issue. And you know, it's, with respect to DHA, the most beneficial omega three fat, uh, it's my understanding that's the only fatty acid that you eat unless you're starving. That your body will not burn as fuel. It, it preserves it and integrates into the cell membranes. Okay. I, I don't know that that's true. It, it might be true. Uh, it is certainly the precursor to numerous other things that the cell needs. And it's also a precursor to endocannabinoids, which again, improve uh, uh, contentment and uh, increase um, happiness. Yes, indeed. So these are... Uh you know, you don't really go deep into, as I said, into the biochemistry. And I just want to acknowledge and, and express my gratitude for your assistance in editing my book, Fat for Fuel, uh, to, pleasure. To, to validate some of that science. And you were part of two dozen people who are really world-class experts to make, to make sure there weren't any serious scientific errors in there. And uh, I greatly appreciate that because it was a real benefit. And you pointed out some items that needed to be shifted around a bit to, to make it more accurate. But uh, your, your book is incredible. I think it's going to serve a lot of people's uh, desire to understand this at a greater detail, especially the connection between the addictive practices that we engage in and this impact on dopamine 
resistance? And how, how would you call that? Was it dopamine resistance or is it dopamine tolerance? Or what's the best scientific term for it? I, well, it's called tolerance. You know, okay. the, I mean, basically by downregulating its own receptor, dope, you know, excess dopamine ultimately leads to no effect. Uh, called tolerance. And then again, because it's an excitatory neurotransmitter, when the neurons start to die, now you've got addiction. And it takes... What, what, what's, the what's the difference between tolerance and, and resistance, though, at the receptor level? Um, uh, well, so resistance can be for any reason, including lack of receptors or changes in second messengers. But uh, tolerance is very specifically a reduction in number of receptors. Okay. So, so resistance is a subset of tolerance. Yeah. And tolerance is a, a clinical phenomenon as opposed to resistance, which, you know, would be more of a biochemical one. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. Not at all. The point of, uh, that the, your uh, audience needs to know is that it takes three weeks for the receptors to repopulate. Mm -hmm. And the cravings can go on for upwards of a year when you're addicted. So this is a long-term process and, you know, sometimes requires medical intervention and medical management by physicians who understand addiction medicine. So you had mentioned that these serotonin receptors or neurons tend to decrease and permanently die, but can you comment on the neuroplasticity of the brain and the ability of it to regenerate some of these if in fact you recognize the mistakes that you've been engaging in and shift to a healthier lifestyle that should well, fully activate that neuroplasticity. Well, thus far, the only areas of the brain that have been able, that have been shown to have neurogenesis, that is mm -hmm. new neurons being formed, are the olfactory bulb and the hippocampus. And I'm not familiar or aware of any other places in the brain where you can actually see new neurons being formed. Now, hippocampus is super important in this story because it is part of the stress fear memory pathway. And there are a lot of things that kill the hippocampus, the most important of which is cortisol. And cortisol, of course, is the output of uh, you know, our stress response. And we are under constant chronic stress. So stress alleviation, reduction in cortisol, let your hippocampus do its job, tamp down the amygdala, let your prefrontal cortex, your Jiminy Cricket, the part of your brain that basically tells you not to do stupid things, you know, let it recover because dopamine suppresses the prefrontal cortex as well. There are three pathways that are important in the brain. There's the reward pathway, the dopamine pathway, there's the contentment pathway, the serotonin pathway, and then there's the stress fear memory pathway, which involves numerous neurotransmitters, but the ultimate output is cortisol. Bottom line, they all have to be working right. And if they're not, you're going to slip into one of the different phenomena that we've talked about, either addiction or depression or chronic metabolic disease or a combination of all three. You can lift yourself out. There are ways to do it, but you can't do it if you don't know what the problem is. Have you looked at all into the contribution of circadian biology, into the contribution of some of these pathways and optimizing that aspect? Certainly, uh, for serotonin, it's extraordinarily important, and this is why sleep deprivation is such an important uh, negative contributor and why it's important to get to sleep. Perhaps something that your uh, audience needs to know is that if you sleep with the cell phone in your room, <laughs> you will get 
28 minutes less sleep per day than if you have the cell phone charging outside your room just from the blue screen. People think it's, well, because I'm on it all the time. No, it's actually the light coming through the eyes to the retina, activating the superior colliculus, altering melatonin, and thereby reducing the amount of sleep. So reading a book is a great idea. By candlelight. By candlelight. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, reading it off a Kindle or reading it uh, off your cell phone uh, is not a good idea. Well, the Kindle isn't that bad, it, it, potentially. It's because it, it does have an LED light in there, but you can essentially turn it off, which is why you can read it. It's even easier to read in the sunlight. There's just no light on at all when it's, in, when it's off. So uh, it's, it's actually the healthiest way to read e-ink, but it's, you can't read it with the light off at nighttime. <laughs> you have to have some type of light source. Give me a book. <laughs> <laughs> no question about it. So, uh, and I would argue too. There's no. That's why I was laughing with the cell phone. Yes, you know, most of the most of the cell phones, the um, the light will go off. So I'm not, not sure that the light is the biggest. Or you can turn it on its on its face so that there's a lot of light coming up. But what's more important is the electromagnetic frequencies coming out of that phone because it's connected to the cell phone tower. So there's just, unless you've got some type of emergency, from my perspective, and this is a serious passion of mine now that I'm really diving deep into, there is just no damn reason to ever have that cell phone in anything but airplane mode when you're sleeping, unless you have, you're expecting an emergency and to have your Wi-Fi on at night, which is another source of microwave radiation. Look, think of it this way. I, I, I mitochondrial, would, mitochondrial poisons. I, I don't argue, but I, think of it this way. The French government have actually passed a law that employees of any uh, business in France are not allowed to read their emails after 5 p.m. There's a reason for that. What's the penalty? If they, if they, if they <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't tried it. Because <laughs> you can make any law you want, but it's all about enforcement. You know, I mean, there's a lot of laws in the book that are never enforced. The point is that they recognize that the stress of continued uh, uh, work beyond our, our standard eight-hour day uh, yeah. does have uh, negative implications for health and public health. Yes, no question about it. It's, it's a big issue. And one of the other ways you can address stress, of course, is through a regular optimized exercise program, which will help. Indeed. Uh, helps many people. Not everyone, because you can still override that with the best exercise program in the world, but it's, it's certainly a good strategy. So sleep, mindfulness, exercise, mm -hmm. and... Mindfulness and exercise are uh, not um, the same. They are, mm -hmm. they are synergistic. And so if you, if you do yoga, you're getting the mindfulness and the exercise. And it's one of the reasons why yoga has really taken off uh, as much as it has. Well, it's been around for 5,000 years. So they probably, probably some, <laughs> something there just get, they figured out. Indeed. But now we know why. This is great. Do you have any other recommendations that you'd like to add or other items you would like to expand on in, in your book? Well, uh, the fact is that um, people knew about happiness. People knew about pleasure. But in fact, they've been conflated and confused on purpose by businesses and governments on purpose for, because it helped them sell. You have to understand the difference in order to, you know, be able to turn this around. So 
What's the difference between pleasure and happiness? There are seven differences. Pleasure is vis uh, visceral, happiness is ethereal. Pleasure is short-term, happiness is long-term. Pleasure is uh, usually achieved alone, happiness is usually achieved in social groupings. Pleasure is taking, happiness is giving. Pleasure can be achieved with substances, happiness cannot be achieved with substances. The extremes of pleasure all lead to addiction, whereas there's no such thing as being addicted to happiness. And finally, again, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. Understanding the difference between the two is something for some reason that the American public just never got. And we have to make them get it in order to turn this problem around. Academics don't get it. Businesses don't get it. The federal government certainly doesn't get it. We have to make them get it. That's why this book is so crucial. I agree. And the book is The Hacking of the American Mind. It's available on Amazon right now, uh, either for pre-order or if it's past the publication date. When, you watch, when you're watching this, then you could get it immediately. So, uh, and it's available electronically on Amazon, which literally means in seconds you could be reading it. So that's uh, one of my favorite. I read about 150, 200 books a year. I love reading. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, the downside of it is because it's relatively dense, it, it took me a little bit longer to read it than I normally read my books. <laughs> but you, you really did provide a compelling argument for the, the uh, helping people understand this distinction between dopamine and serotonin and the variables that'll help optimize that in the right direction. I mean, they know, they've known about the basics and all the other components, but to, to put it together comprehensively in a way to uh, explain the neurochemistry really is a, is a helpful motivator to engage in healthy behavior. The bottom line is it's about the science. You know, there will be detractors who will say, this is gobbledygook, this is garbage. The bottom line is there are 600 references and they're all to the primary literature to demonstrate that this is not gobbledygook, that the science actually uh, predicts the uh, phenomena that we see and the society we've become. And in order to uh, uh, fix it, you have to understand it, you have to be on board, and there's only one way to do it, and that is to lay out the science. Well, it would seem that many of the tractor would be either either one of two groups, either irrational or a corporate troll. So a lot of those. <laughs> we certainly there's no shortage of either of those. No, that's so, sure. uh, but congratulations on your book. Uh, it's well written, and I think it will really help serve the goal of helping people engage, get providing them the the, the knowledge so that they can have a, a stronger motivation and justification to engage in these healthy behaviors. Thank you. And uh, best of luck with your book as well. It's already done well. Hope it continues to. Mitochondria matter. Yeah, absolutely. They do. The mighty mitochondria. And, you, uh, you know, when, you, when you're engaging in, in the behaviors you discussed to optimize serotonin, what are you doing? You didn't really get into it in the book, but you easily could have, but you're optimizing mitochondrial function. That's right. Yeah. No question. Okay. Well, thanks again. Well, thank you again, Dr. Mercola. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure.